And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's November the 6th, 310th day of the year. 55 days remain until the year's over with. The, uh, let's see, you all asked for holidays and observances. It's Job Action Day. So if you got a job, go take some action. National Nachos Day. All Saints Day in Colombia. Call the World Orange Day. Constitution Day in Dominican Republic. Dog Film Day. Get out your camera and film your dog. International Day for Preventing the Exploitation of the Environment and War and Armed Conflict. Now that's a mouthful. Maroon Without a Compass Day. National Ladies Learning Code Day. National Michelle Day. National Port Home Healthcare Fraud Day. National Saxophone Day. National Team Manager Day. Play Basketball Day. And Recreation Day. It's celebrated in northern Tasmania, Australia on the first Monday in November. Now... Ask yourself this, what kind of recreation can you have in Tasmania and Australia? I don't have a clue. Alrighty, as I say, it's November the 6th, in 447 AD, a powerful earthquake destroys large portions of the wall of Constantinople, including 57 of their defense towers. 963, the Synod of Rome, Emperor Otto I calls a council at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Pope John Twelfth is deposed on charges of an armed rebellion against Otto. Even God's representative on earth is not safe from the anger of a king. 1217, the Charter of the Forest is sealed at St. Paul's Cathedral in London by King Henry III. Acting under the regency of William Marshall, first Earl of Pembroke, which reestablishes for free men rights of access to the royal forest that had been eroded by William the Conqueror, my ancestor, and his heirs. 1792, Battle of Jampapis in the French Revolutionary War. 1860, Abraham Lincoln is elected the 16th president of the U.S. with only 40% of the popular vote, defeating John C. Breckinridge, John Bell, and Stephen Douglas on the four way race. I've often thought the presidential election should be a cage match, winner take all. Um, 1869 in New Brunswick, New Jersey, Rutgers College defeats Princeton University, then known as the College of New Jersey, 6-4 to four in the first official intercollegiate American football game. 1900, President William McKinley is re-elected along with his vice president uh, running mate, Governor Theodore Roosevelt of New Jersey. Republicans also swept the congressional elections, winning increased majorities in both the Senate and the House of Representatives. 1936, Spanish Civil War. The Republican government flees from Madrid to Valencia, leading to the formation of the Madrid Defense Council in its place. You can tell when they firmly believe in their cause when they run for the hills. 1943, World War II. First Ukrainian Front liberates Kiev from German occupation. 1947, Meet the Press. 
The longest running television program in history makes its debut on NBC TV. 1963, Nguyen Nok is appointed to head the South Vietnamese government by General Dong Man Men's Junta. Five days after the latter uh, deposed and assassinated President Leo Dinh Diem. 1971, U.S. Atomic Energy Commission tests the largest U.S. underground hydrogen bomb, codenamed Kanakin, on uh, Amchitka Island in the Aleutians. 1977, the Kelly Barnes Dam, located above Toccoa Falls College in Toccoa, Georgia, fails, kills 39. 1985, Colombian conflict, leftist guerrillas of the 19th of April movement seized control of the Palace of Justice in Bogota. 1986, Sunbird disaster. British International Helicopters Boeing 234 LR Chinook crashes two and a half miles east of Sumberg Airport, killing 45 people. The deadliest civilian helicopter crash on record. 1988, the Lankang earthquakes. At least 938 are killed after two powerful earthquakes rocked the China-Myanmar border in Yunnan province. 1995, Cleveland Browns relocation controversy. Art Modell announces he signed a deal that would relocate the Cleveland Browns to Baltimore. 2002, Zhang Lihun is detained by Chinese police for signing the open letter to the 16th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. 2002, a Fokker 50 crashes near Luxembourg Airport, kills 20 and injures 3. 2004, an express train collides with a stationary car near the village of Ufton, Nevert, England, killing seven and injuring 150. 2012, Tammy Baldwin becomes the first openly gay politician to be elected to the U.S. Senate. 2016, Syrian civil war. The Syrian Democratic Forces launched an offensive to capture the city of Raqqa from the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. Keep in mind that those that stand for freedom and integrity and all this stuff during the day at night sneak around and work with their supposed worst enemies. You know, we've been uh, talking about a lot of strange things. And today... I'm going back to uh, the book that I wrote about, um, well, I called it Unfinished Business. The uh, It's Unsolved Murders, and there's a lot of those. Now, let's see. Let's talk about... Now, this became a, I guess you could say, a cause celebrity. The murder of Mary Fagan. Now, this was a 13-year-old girl. And in the normal course of events, it wouldn't have gotten national attention except for the fact that the individual executed for her alleged murder 
was found guilty primarily because he was Jewish. The evidence against him was extremely circumstantial. In fact, he had been found guilty, ordered he was in prison, ordered a new trial, and people broke him out of prison to hang him. Now, this has always been a case involving wrongdoing on the part of court officials as well as corrupt and incompetent police work at every level. I know Rio Frank was convicted of her murder and then broke out of prison to be hung by a lynch mob. There's a great deal of evidence to indicate that Frank was framed by the police simply because he was Jewish and the real killer or killers got away. Now, by all accounts, Mary Fagan was a a lovely young woman who would have grown into a beautiful young uh, woman, born June 1st, 1899, into what was referred to as an established Georgia family of tenant farmers. Now, the state of Georgia, their idea of justice leaves a great deal to be des desired, in my humble opinion. Um, I spent a good number of years practicing in that state, and... The senior judge, I mean, this man was so powerful he could appoint the governor if he so desired. Took me to lunch and he said, look, you got to understand a few things. He was a good friend of my father's, which is why he was educating me. He said, um, certain people don't need to own property. That's for those of us in the elite to own that property. And you're interfering by representing a black family. And I said, but everybody has the right to representation. And he said, no, they don't in the state of Georgia. He said, if you continue to try to represent these people, they will destroy your career. You'll be considered a traitor to your race. And that's exactly what happened. Well, her father, Mary Fagan's father, died prior to her birth, raised primarily by her mother, Frances Fagan. And for her part, Frances moved her daughter several times in an attempt to establish a stable home life. 1899, shortly after Mary was born, she moved back to her hometown of Marietta, Georgia. And then in 1907, moved to East Point, Georgia, where she opened a boarding house. Now, it has to be remembered that um, this time period, early 20th century, was a time of child labor. And a lot of jobs today we would never dream of allowing a child to perform were in fact routinely filled with children during the time period as their wages were a lot less than those of an adult. And so it was at the time she was 10 years old, Mary's mother allowed her to leave school to take a part-time job at a textile factory. And while the wages couldn't have been much, every penny was needed to keep a roof over the family's head. Now, in 1912, things appeared to be getting better for the Fagans as Francis Fagan married John William Coleman, and he moved his ready-made family to Atlanta, a place I would not go at gunpoint. In the spring of 1912, Mary got what to her seemed a dream job with the National Pencil Company. She got 10 cents an hour, which was a good ways. 
rage, oh, one more time, wage, operating a curling machine, which inserted rubber erasers into the metal tips of pencils. Now, she was initially scheduled to work 55 hours a week. And she'd get $5.50 a week if she worked a full shift in 1912. And that was considered a decent wage for a child. In 1912, the average wage was 22 cents an hour for an adult male worker. Children and women were paid about the same as women in 1912, earning about 60% of the wages a male would earn in the same job. Her job location was on the second floor of the factory in a metal room that was located in a section called the tipping department. And it was also located directly across the hall from the office of the superintendent of the Pencil Factory, Leo Frank. Now, May 21st, 1913, Mary was laid off due to a shortage of brass sheet metal. And without the sheet metal, she couldn't run her machine or install the erasers on the tip of the pencil. You know, for unskilled workers in 1913, there was very little in the way of job security. So she was left wondering how to earn a living. And since every penny was important to this young wage earner, she wasn't prepared to forego anything she might have earned at the pencil company. So it was that on the afternoon of April 26, 1913, she made a trip to the company to get her last paycheck, which amounted to a grand total of $1.20. twenty. This was also the same day she met her killer. Now, as near as can be determined, the murder took place either late on the evening of Saturday, April 26th, or very early on Sunday morning, April 27th. Um, the body was discovered by Newt Lee, the night watchman, at about uh, 3 a.m. on April 27th. Now, at that hour, of course, the factory was closed, dark, deserted coal because they they turned down the uh, the boilers saved money and that was late April in Atlanta Georgia was still get quite cold at night as this was uh, night since the heat in the factory which came from a boiler in the basement was set low to conserve heating fuel there were actually two different stories about how and why Newt Lee found the body of Mary Fagan. First story was that he was the night watchman and it was his duty to make rounds of each area of each floor of the deserted plant each hour. Had to punch a time clock every 30 minutes on each floor. And the only light in the building at that time was a hand-carried lantern. Flashlights in those days were extremely rare. Second story about how and why he found the body was that he had to go to the toilet. It was patently not true as there were bathrooms in the work areas for all the employees. So he didn't have to go to the basement. According to reports, Lee was tired this evening. Even though he'd been given some unexpected time off as that afternoon uh, by Leo Franks himself. Having been on a job for some months, he'd become used to wandering around that huge factory building in the dark. His footsteps and his own breathing, the only sounds he ever heard. So he wouldn't have been especially alert as he patrolled the dark, deserted second floor, punched the time clock, and started down the narrow stairs toward the first floor. 
Well, on the dark, deserted first floor, he didn't find anything out of the ordinary, so he opened a trap door over the scuttle hole that led to the pitch-black basement. He took a firm grip on the metal handle of the gently swinging lantern and slowly descended a narrow ladder to the basement of the silent factory. Now, if there was an area where he would be especially cautious, it was this very dark, silent, tomb-like area. basement was lit after a fashion as there was a gas jet that... Uh, was to always be left burning, though it was turned down low. Got to conserve fuel, you know. Slowly he turned, his lantern light illuminating each corner of this very dark area. First three corners were empty, as always. When he turned his lantern toward the boiler, he saw something that shouldn't have been there. Thinking his eyes were playing tricks on him, he moved closer to the boiler to better examine what was there and froze. He was looking at the body of a child. And the body neatly discovered was that of Mary Fagan. According to police reports, the girl was discovered in the rear of the basement near an incinerator. The dress was pulled up around her waist and a strip of her petticoat had been torn off and wrapped around her neck. The little face was blackened and scratched and her head was bruised and battered as if she had been severely beaten. Seven-foot strip of quarter-inch wrapping cord is tied into a loop around her neck and buried a quarter of an inch deep, showing she'd apparently died for strangulation. Underwear was still around her slim hips, but it was stained with blood and torn open. Skin was covered with ashes and dirt from the floor of the basement. The uh, initial impression of the investigating officers is that she and her killer had struggled in the basement before she was overpowered and killed. Now, there was a service ramp at the rear of the basement, it led to a sliding door that opened into the alley behind the building. During the investigation, it was discovered that the lock of this sliding door had been tampered with so it could be opened from the outside without being unlocked. And even though there was much discussion, only somebody with access to the plant could have entered the basement. This certainly was not true. During the investigation, it was discovered there were bloody fingerprints on the door and prints were also found on a metal pipe that had been used as a crowbar. Now, officers Rogers and W.T. Anderson, along with a reporter, had been sleeping in the back of Rogers' car, as well as Officer Dobbs and Brown, who were picked up along the way, arrived at the silent pencil factory, still dark in these early morning hours. And after a period of pounding on the front door, they were admitted by a very shaken Newt Lee, whose eyes reflected his shock at finding a dead body. Now, the officers demanded to be taken to the dead body, and so it was guns drawn. The four officers followed the terrified night watchman across the main floor of the silent factory to the ladder that led to the equally silent basement. Lee led him down the ladder to the basement and pointed with a shaky hand toward the boiler area and said, that's the body. Well, the four officers bent over that small body. She was lying face down across a pile of sawdust. Her head was pointed toward the front, her feet lying diagonally across the pile toward the right rear corner of the basement. Her face, which was black with grime, as I said, was turned toward the wall. And gently the big officers knelt down and turned the tiny body, and then they saw the extent of her injuries. According to her, their description, her hair was in shreds, but it was the unmistakable hair of a white person. Her hair was matted and stained darker blood that had flowed from a blow to the back of the head. Now, a lot of the information came from uh, a document called the Frank Case, published by the 
find a publishing company in 1913. The deceased had been wearing a blue ribbon in her hair that was now welted and dirty and bloodstained. Wearing a silk lavender dress that had been smeared with blood and grimy from its contact with the floor of the basement. One small white slipper was still dangling from her right foot. Well, as her head fell back, officers could now see the heavy cord wrapped tightly around her neck. Like she had gagged, torn from her own dress, wrapped her head, and filled her mouth. Her undershirt was, uh, or underskirt, was ripped to shreds. The supporter for one of her white stockings was broken, while the stocking itself bagged down almost to the knee of the of her leg. Sergeant Brown examined the body as well as he could in the dim light of the lantern. Sergeant Dobbs made what was described as a thorough search of the cellar floor, his eyes probing the darkness and the very dim light available to him. A few feet from the body, he found the other shoe lying on the dirty floor. And near the elevator shaft, he found the hat she had uh, left home wearing. And then he made what was described as a big discovery. Lying discarded on the dirt floor were two dirty pieces of paper that Sergeant Dodd quickly grabbed with his bare hands. He never bothered to mark the exact locations where he found these scraps of paper, but if there were any fingerprints on they just became useless. And on these scraps, somebody had written very crudely. He said he'd loved me, laid down like the night which did it. But that long, tall, black Negro did it by himself. And the second message said, uh, Mom, that Negro hired down here did this. I went to get water, and he pushed me down this hole. Um, the two messages certainly made no sense to the officers. They didn't know if the killer had written the messages. Maybe the victim wrote. Certainly the eyes of each officer present turned to stare at the night watchman, who, of course, was black. And it was uh, W.T. Anderson who broke the silence. He immediately accused the night watchman of the murder and grabbed him by the shoulder. Well, New Lee was stunned, of course. He shook his head and croaked out a response. Poor God, I didn't, white folks. Well, ignoring the denial, it's only seconds later that uh, Anderson slapped the cuffs on Lee with a resounding click. Newt Lee was immediately arrested for the murder of the currently unknown female victim. Case closed through the brilliant detective work of the Atlanta police. Well, not necessarily. At 5 o'clock in the morning, the body of the unknown white female had been transferred to the morgue and Newt Lee was safely behind bars. Time for the bragging. Another case closed through the brilliant detective work of Atlanta's finest. Of course, they still identify the victim and then prove that Lee was guilty of her uh, murder. But in 1913, Georgia, calling religion, uh, counted more toward proving guilt than such a silly thing as evidence. That Lee was black. So in the minds of the four officers, the case was closed. Well, there were a few loose ends, though. Officer Rogers stated to the officers at the crime scene he knew somebody who worked at the pencil company might be able to identify the dead girl. He was talking about his sister-in-law, Grace Hicks. Rogers went and got her and took her to the morgue, and Grace Hicks took one look at the dead girl and said, It's a little girl that worked at the machine next to me. It's Mary Fagan. And then at that point, Grace Hicks fainted. Well, while the identification had taken place, other officers had been at the crime scene. About 
In the morning, uh, Detective Starnes called Leo Frank, the superintendent, at his home and told him something had happened at the factory. He told uh, Frank they'd send a car to get him. According to what was said by Rogers and uh, Detective John Black, when they arrived at the Frank house, Miss Frank opened the door, and almost immediately, Leo Frank joined them, almost dressed except for his collar and his tie. Also appeared, at least to them, to be extremely nervous, constantly rubbing his hands, um, which they found suspicious. Later on, they testified this nervousness uh, was highly suspicious in their minds. Three men got into Roger's car and left the Frank home. Rogers asked Frank if he knew a girl named Mary Fagan. He responded he'd look at the factory payroll and see if that name was listed as an employee. Arriving at the pencil factory, Leo Frank went directly to his office, pulled out an employee ledger, and confirmed Mary Fagan was or had been employed there. At that point, he seemed to remember Mary and said uh, she'd come to get her pay. The stenographer left at uh, noon, and the office boy left a few minutes later, and he thought Mary had come in about 12.15. He also mentioned somebody who had been fired. J.M. Gant had uh, also come in Saturday morning to pick up a pair of shoes he left behind, and he thought Mary knew him. So the police, determined to immediately charge somebody, began looking for J.M. Gant. Certainly throughout his time with the police, Leo Franks acted nervous and nervously talked, as many people do. This is later viewed as a sign of guilt, or at least a guilty conscience. In fact, N.V. Darley, the general foreman of the plant where Franks had, uh, who Franks had called to come in, said that Franks was actually trembling. Well, by talking to various witnesses, the story of Mary's last day was finally pieced together. It was Memorial Day, a holiday, so it was the first holiday Mary had been able to enjoy. Now that she was laid off, um, every day would be a holiday until she found a, another job. Well, Mary had planned to go get her pay from the factory and then spend the rest of the day watching the Confederate Veterans Parade down Peachtree Street. According to her mother, Mary had a lunch of cabbage and biscuits before leaving for the factory. She said to have boarded a streetcar about noon. At this point, it should be commented that Mary's attire was certainly rather dressy for somebody who was going to a factory and didn't watch a parade. It was basically what those in the South used to call Sunday go-to-meeting attire. Lavender dress, white hose, a bow in her hair, this wasn't casual dress by any means. So folks began to wonder was she planning on meeting a paramour. Certainly the police never bothered to follow up on this. Once in the streetcar, Merriman and neighbor boy, George Epps, and they sat on the car, and before she left the car, she promised to, to meet him at 1 and p.m. and go watch the parade with him. At Marietta and Forsyth Streets, uh, Mary left the streetcar about a block from the factory building at this point, and that was the last anybody saw Mary Fagan. Later that evening, George Epps went to Mary's house to find out why she hadn't met him at the parade, and Found her mother's very worried because Mary had not come home. J.W. Coleman, her stepfather, went into town to check all the places Mary might have gone, but to no avail, nobody had seen the young girl. Went into early Sunday morning, April 27th, that Helen Ferguson, a neighbor, came to tell Frances Fagan that the Mary was dead. Mr. Coleman immediately rushed down to the Bloomfield mortuary where he viewed the body, confirming that Mary Fagan was indeed dead. 
Well, when word spread of Mary's murder, the largest crowds in Atlanta's history to that time came to view the body. Over 20,000 people. Hundreds more came to view the body at the funeral in Marietta. And prior to the funeral, physicians made an examination of parts of Mary's body, though their results were kept secret until the trial. On Tuesday, April 29th, Mary Fagan was laid to rest in the old family cemetery in Marietta. But in a shocking turn of events, on May 7th, the body was exhumed at the order of the state solicitor and detailed examination was made of the stomach and other vital organs by H.F. Harris, a physician from the State Board of Health. Again, the findings from this unusual examination were kept secret till the trial, which took place almost three months later. But it's interesting to note that for the death of a young girl who did not have any political attachments, all this brouhaha was quite unusual. Well, of course, police insisted they got their man with the arrest of Newt Lee, but they were forced to examine some of the hundreds of tips that flooded into headquarters. In addition to the so-called murder notes, we'd been able to tell officers it was a white girl. He'd said he'd not examined the body, and according to the officers, there was the grime. It was impossible to tell what color she was from any distance. Newt Lee, of course, claimed he knew she was white based on her hair. Should also be mentioned that in their initial investigation of the crime scene, much of the evidence from there had been compromised by the first officers on the scene. So the crime scene was almost useless. In the darkness of the basement, police had trampled a trail in the dirt that led from the elevator shaft along which police believed the killer had drugged the body. Footprints found around the body were never identified, and the bloody fingerprints on the Sliding door were never properly investigated either. <coughs> Excuse me. And the author or authors of the what the press were calling the murder notes were never identified. <coughs> also questions that arose on how police found blood spots on the second floor of the factory on the machine where Mary Fagan worked. However, even if this was true, would be the relevance of this blood when she'd been laid off and was no longer operating that machine? What would have been her reason to be around the machine at this point, especially dressed in what were probably her best clothes? Those questions were never examined, of course, because they had their man. Then it was stated that blood spots had been found on the first floor near the elevator shaft. Now, this, of course, supported a theory she'd been murdered and then taken to the basement where her body was dumped. A witness came forward and said he had seen Mary Fagan about 12.10 in the afternoon walking along Forsyth Street with a former streetcar conductor named Arthur Mullinax. He also tell the employee at the C.J. Kemper Grocery. Told police he knew Mary and known her for years, and there was no doubt that she was the one that met Mullinax. So Mullinax was immediately arrested and thrown in jail on suspicion of murder. Then police arrested J.M. Gant on suspicion. I mean, after all, he'd worked at the factory, knew Mary, didn't have a solid alibi. His sister, Miss C.F. Terrell, said he had stayed at her house Friday night, but then she gave conflicting statements about his movements after that. 
So now, there were three people arrested in regard to Mary's murder. Well, on Monday, April 28th, the pencil factory hired the local Pinkerton detectives to help the police solve the crime. That same morning, the coroner, Paul Donahue, uh, converted the coroner's jury in the, uh, convened the coroner's jury in the middle room of the pencil factory for a view of the possible murder scene. And as soon as they saw the room, the jury was immediately adjourned. May 1st, at the coroner's inquest, Mullinax's fiancée, Pearl Robinson, came forward and said that it was she had been walking with Mullinax on Versailles Street at 1210 on that particular afternoon. Faced with this, uh, E.L. Sintel retracted his statement. Mullinax was freed. Gant was freed as well as it turned out the evidence against him wasn't solid. On Tuesday, April 29th, Leo Frank, the superintendent of the National Pencil Factory, was arrested on suspicion of murder of Mary Fagan. Little did he know when that cell door slammed shut behind him, he'd never see freedom again. In the Georgia legal system, you have to understand accusation equals guilt. Trial's merely a formality, which unfortunately is still true today. Uh, look at what's in the news right now with former President Trump. The evidence against him could not be said to be conclusive. Certainly wouldn't be sufficient for an arrest in any other jurisdiction in the country, but this was Georgia place where race and position mattered a great deal. And the police felt they had built a solid case against the man. By his own admission, Frank was the last man known to have seen Mary Fagan alive. He appeared nervous when Newt Lee came to the factory early in the afternoon. He called Newt Lee over the telephone during the evening, something he had never done before. And he was nervous when Gant came to the factory on Saturday afternoon. And he was nervous when officers took him to the factory Sunday morning. So being nervous, of course, uh, I mean, that's a clear indication of guilt. How about somebody who has an unusual fear of authority? Fra frankly, in a modern court, any place but Georgia, any first-year legal aid attorney could have destroyed the case, but this was Georgia. And behind the scenes, it was clear they would make a lot of people happy if Franks was convicted. After all, the major evidence against him was clear. He was Jewish. They couldn't pin the case on New Lee, a black man, and who better than Frank? Even though they'd arrested Leo Frank, Atlanta police didn't want to give up their chief suspect, Newt Lee. In an effort to find additional evidence, police conducted a detailed search of Lee's home. In the burn barrel in the back of his cabin, investigators discovered a shirt that was st had dark stains on it. So these brilliant investigators immediately declared it to be blood, and Mary Fagan's blood at that. Blood was smelled high up on the armpits, and the shirt appeared to have never been worn. Well, when police were initially jubilant over the discovery, they began to believe the shirt may have been planted to incriminate Lee. The main problem with this evidence is that the police couldn't explain why the shirt appeared not to have been worn after the blood was smeared on it. And for his own part, Newt Lee denied ever having seen the shirt before, claiming the one he had on was he'd worn for a week. Police finally decided Franks had arranged the shirt to be planted to incriminate Lee. What was your evidence for that? Gut feeling. It appears there's not a single piece of evidence appointed to blame to Frank. But there were a lot of small things. 
According to author Steve Oney, in his book, And the Dead Shall Rise, The Murder of Mary Fagan and the Lynching of Leo Frank, the evidence against Leo Frank consisted of the charges were dropped against Mullinax and Gant, so they had to charge somebody. The rumors that Mary Fagan had been seen later in 1215 on the street with this county, which made Frank the last person to admit seeing Mary alive. It was Leo Frank that called into Pinkerton's. Oh, that's prime proof of, evidence, of guilt right there. And a shifting view of Newt Lee's role in the matter. Well, police, of course, were willing to shift things around to make their case. Now it's believed that Newt Lee was actually Frank's accomplice in the murder. Authorities arranged a face-to-face -face meeting between Newt Lee and Leo Frank in the hope that one or the other would make an incriminating statement. Nothing conclusive came from this meeting, but the police viewed it as further factor implicating Frank as the murderer. During the court's inquest, the newspaper boy George Epps said that Mary had mentioned to him that Frank had once winked at her and looked suspicious. How does someone look suspicious? There was no evidence submitted supporting these events and no explanation of what Mary allegedly meant when she called him suspicious. As a matter of law, the statement by Epps was hearsay at its finest, and certainly under the rules of evidence it wasn't admissible at trial, but in Georgia, courtroom hearsay is how many cases are decided. I think matters worse for uh, Frank. Several of the women who worked at the pencil factory said Frank um, had uh, flirted with them, and one claimed he, she'd been propositioned. Of course, none of these witnesses had anything to back up their claims, not even being able to furnish dates of when these events were supposed to have taken place. And the detectives even had to admit they had so far obtained no conclusive evidence or even any clues in the baffling mystery. Well, based upon this nothing of a case, the coroner ordered Lee and Newt Lee and Leo Frank to be detained on suspicion of murder. Well, in May... William Burns of the Burns Detective Agency traveled to Atlanta to offer assistance in solving the case. But that same month, his firm withdrew from the case due to the petty politics that continually interfered with the investigation. The agency quickly became uncomfortable with the many society implications in the case, one of the most important being that since Frank was a rich Jew, so that meant he could buy off the police and bring in private detectives to get him off. It was also said to be intense animosity between the police and the private detectives hired by the pencil factory. Even resulted in the police following the private detectives and sure they didn't plant evidence that would clear Frank. So you got investigators following investigators. That shows true efficiency, let me tell you. Police left no stone unturned in their evidence to build a case against Frank. Now, as is typical at most Keystone-style uh, cops, when you decide who did it, you don't investigate anything else. You ignore anything else that would interfere. Well, they left no stone unturned in their efforts to build a case against him. They even had Frank strip and allow his body to be examined for wounds of any sort. Police found none, or did they find any blood on the suit that Frank wore that day and none on any clothing at his home? Well, despite this... The officers were positive Frank was the culprit and left no stone unturned to make their case. Officers questioned Jim Conley, the factory's janitor, and even though he admitted he lied on several occasions based on what he had to say after some coaching, 
They used his statements to build a case against Leo Frank. There's also indications that the third degree had been used on several witnesses in order to get them to make the statements that the police wanted. And as we'll see shortly, the third degree was used on uh, several potential witnesses to build the case against Leo Frank. Now, the term third degree is a euphemism for torture. In other words, inflicting pain, physical or mental, or to extract confessions or, or statements. 1931, the Wickersham Commission found that the use of the third degree was widespread in the U.S. Well, one important face, uh, facet of the prosecutor's case was the timeline they worked so hard to establish. Now, even the, the most basic overview showed several problems with this timeline. Based on the stomach contents, the prosecution argued that Mary Fagan had died between 12 and 12.15 p.m. And uh, one of the prosecution's main witnesses, Montine Stover, testified she had gone to Frank's office to get her paycheck. And she is positive she waited there from 12.05 until 12.10 p.m. and didn't see Frank in his office. And according to the prosecution, Frank was busy killing Mary Fagan at that point, which is why he was not in his office. Of course, Montine Stover, um, Stover was not asked to prove she'd been in Frank's office or show anything to corroborate how long she was in the office or even if she was in the office. They took her word for everything. Testimony of George Epps was used to establish the time Mary said they'd gotten off the trolley. He was adamant she left the trolley at 12.07. Exactly. Now, since he didn't have a watch, how he came up with that time is anybody's guess. But both the motorman, M.W. Matthews, and the conductor, W.T. Hollis, testified that Fagan got off the trolley at 12.10. And they also testified that George Epps had not been on the trolley that day. However, the prosecution refused to question Epps' testimony as they needed it for their timeline. Now, I, point, I might point out that Westrotches were a rarity in 1913, especially among the young. And nobody, defense or prosecution, bothered to ask Epps how he was so sure it was exactly 12.07. According to testimony off the trial, it takes three to four minutes from the trolley stop to walk to the factory. The motorman and the conductor were correct regarding the time Mary left the trolley there. That she could arrive at the factory unless she ran from the trolley stop to the factory which was never inquired into, was about 12.15. By this point in time, Montine Stover, by her own testimony, left Frank's office, which makes her testimony irrelevant. And it also shows that for the time of death to be accurate, Mary had to be killed the moment she stepped into the factory, which doesn't fit with the prosecutor's theory. But since the authorities were adamant that he killed Mary, adjustments to stories and statements were made. And part of the problem was that the members of the coroner's jury, the grand jury and the trial jury, had been bombarded by press reports and police statements that Frank was guilty, had to be guilty, no question that anybody else did it. So his chances of a fair trial were almost nil. The trial was almost a formality since testimony would have cleared uh, Frank was ignored time and time again. Mimi Quinn, the foreman of the metal room, also testified he spoke to Frank in his office at 1220. Frank had mentioned Quinn's visit when he was first interviewed by police on April 27. Coroner's inquest, Frank testified Quinn arrived less than 10 minutes after Fagan left his office. At trial, Frank testified it was less than five minutes after Fagan left his office that Quinn arrived, so of course he had to be lying. 
His witnesses testified it would take at least 30 minutes to murder Fagan, take the body to the basement, come back to the office, write the so-called uh, murder notes, but Frank's time was fully accounted for between 11.30 and 1.30. Crystal time was between 12 p.m. and 12.15 p.m., and if you met Quinn at 12.20, and Quinn said Frank was sitting at his desk working when he arrived, Frank was certainly not writing murder notes and showed no signs of having just committed a murder. So if all these witnesses were telling the truth, Leo Frank could not possibly have killed Mary Fagan. Prosecution dealt with this problem with their timeline, and witnesses that tended to clear Frank by simply ignoring him. In the case of Quinn, prosecutor accused Quinn of lying, naturally without submitting any proof supporting this charge, and then reminded the jury that Frank had not mentioned Quinn in his statements to the police, so according to the prosecution, it's proved that Quinn's testimony had to be fraudulent. Well, Ray certainly played a part in this trial, and the prosecutor did nothing to stop it. Prosecutors focused a portion of their case on what they called uh, Frank's sexual behavior, which was based entirely on the unsupported testimony of Jim Conley, the plant janitor. Now, much was made in the press about the sexual desires of Jews for white Gentile women, And in fact, there have been entire books written about that. Albert Lindemann wrote uh, The Jew Accused, the Anti-Semitic Affairs of Dreyfus, Bellis, and Frank, 1991. According to Lindemann in his work, there was a developing stereotype of wanton young Jewish males who hungered for fair-haired Gentile women. And while this is said to be a familiar stereotype in Europe, this unreasoned fear of Jewish sexuality threatening white Gentile females reached Atlanta in the 1890s with the arrival of a wave of Eastern European Jews. It might also be noted this stereotype is very similar to the belief that freed blacks lusted after the flower of Southern beauty. Well, this alleged Jewish desire for white Gentile women, tacitly supported by the prosecution's case, inflamed those who decided that Frank had to be guilty and directly uh, led to the truly disgraceful actions that happened later. Well, as for the racial prejudice part, actually both legal teams, defense as well as prosecution, made use of racial stereotypes during the trial. The defense, who believed Conley was either the killer or had helped kill Mary, pictured Conley as a new kind of African-American. Anarchic, degraded, and dangerous. Prosecutor, on the other hand, pictured Conley as a familiar type of uh, old black, like a minstrel player or a plantation worker. Maintained that being black, Conley was not intelligent enough to concoct a complicated story, so what he said had to be the truth. And if that's not racist, I don't know what is. Well, as mentioned earlier, the prosecution based the bulk of its case on the testimony of Jim Conley, the factory janitor. Evidence was found after the trial showing it was probably Conley that killed Mary Fagan. Um, according to um, Lindemann, the best evidence now available indicates the real murderer was probably Jim Conley. Theorized that after she left Frank's office, she met Conley, whose testimony showed uh, was in the building, who tried to get the girl to give him her pay envelope. When she refused, it's believed he killed her and took the money. Um... But, having been publicly committed to the guilt of Frank and under tremendous pressure by the demands of the public that the, uh, the pervert be hung, the evidence implicating Conley was ignored by the police. 
The colony was first investigated and arrested when a witness, E.L. Holloway, a plant timekeeper, reported Conley had been seen washing red stains from a blue work shirt. Conley claimed it was rust stains he was washing out of his shirt since he'd been called to testify at the coroner's inquest and didn't want to go in front of the coroner's jury with a dirty shirt. Police saw no reason not to believe him, but he was locked up anyway, after all. When in doubt, arrest. In his initial statement to the police, Conley maintained he had not been anywhere near the factory on the day of the murder. Also told Detective Scott he couldn't write a word when Scott asked him to write a few sentences for comparison with the murder notes. Scott believed him when Conley said he couldn't write a word, so police just let him sit in jail. Only after investigators began to get negative reports from Conley about other workers, they turned their attention to him again. Seemed he had a long criminal record and wasn't liked at the factory. Also had a reputation for borrowing money and not paying it back. Of course, this wasn't enough to get investigators to consider him a suspect, but Scott found out from a clerk at the factory Conley could both read and write. He had lied. Now that police knew his original statement was not true, they gave him their full attention even went so far as to give him the third degree, which means they beat the crap out of him. Finally, on Friday, May 23rd, Conley admitted he knew how to write and gave uh, writers his, uh, officers a sample. Quick comparison made it clear Conley had very likely written the murder notes that... Uh, Police had found at the crime scene. But it wasn't until the next morning that Conley changed his story again. It was 10 o'clock in the morning, that Saturday morning, when Conley sent for Detective Black. When Black arrived at Conley's cell, Conley said he'd lied his first statement to the police, but now he's going to tell the whole truth. said he'd written the so-called murder notes, but it was because Leo Frank ordered him to do so. Conley said Frank had promised him if he wrote the notes, he'd give him, he'd send them to his mother and she'd give Conley a job. Now, that didn't make a whole lot of sense, but police would have been willing to sell their own firstborn to be able to convict Leo Frank. Conley was elated. He knew Conley had just put um, the rope around Frank's neck and Detective Black would get the credit. First thing he did was test Conley on his spelling and Discovered Conley's spelling of the various words in the murder note were consistent with the original notes. So there was no doubt that Conley had written the two murder notes. The main problem from the point of view of the police was that Conley swore that Frank asked him to write the notes on Friday, which suggested premeditation. It also suggested that Frank, Conley's boss at the factory, confessed to Conley about killing the girl, which the police did not believe. Well, the police knew Conley was lying. They didn't allow him to coach him. The statement uh, would seal the case against Frank. So his second affidavit to the police helped solidify the case against Frank by confirming beyond a shadow of a doubt who had written the murder notes. There were still some gaps in his story, and deciding to get the full story out of Conley, the police subjected him to the third degree, though the defense claimed the police actually took Conley to school to tell him what to say in his third affidavit. Certainly, his third attempt at making a former statement, in spite of some remaining issues, firmly put the noose around Frank's neck. In his third statement, Conley admitted he'd lied about meeting uh, Frank on Friday. I mean, let's face it, the premeditation angle was just unbelievable. And said he met Frank on the street on Saturday. Said Frank told him to follow him to the plant and hide in the wardrobe so that two women are going to visit Frank wouldn't see him. Further claimed that Frank dictated the notes for him to write. Went on to claim that after he wrote the notes, he left the plant and went to a movie. Police were concerned that Frank didn't admit he knew a crime had taken place before he wrote the notes, which meant that Frank had uh, dictated the notes arbitrarily. 
Pencil Company officials responded they believed Conley was at the plant to rob one or more employees, but the police disputed this and never followed up on it, which is typical of the Atlanta police in my humble experience. Fagan's purse was never found, but again, police refused to follow the possibility Fagan had robbed a girl and took the purse since he was an important witness against Frank, who everybody knew was the killer. Well, police attempted to arrange a face-to-face meeting between Frank and Conley, but Frank wanted his attorney present who was out of town. So the meeting didn't take place. Not a constitutional course. Quoted police as saying Frank's refusal to meet without his attorney proved he was guilty. When determined to finalize the case against Frank, on May 29th, the police met with Conley for over four hours. During the meeting, Conley agreed to prepare a new affidavit. In his third affidavit, he admitted he previously lied again. He now told Frank to... He now said that Frank told him he had picked up a book girl back there and let, let her fall and red hit against something. Conley now said he and Frank took the body to the basement through the elevator and returned to Frank's office where Frank dictated the murder notes. Well, frankly, the verdict from the trial is almost a foregone conclusion. The Atlanta Constitution, which had broken the story, the Atlanta Journal, the Atlanta Georgian were competing to see which paper could publish the most lurid details of this murder. Newspaper coverage combined real evidence leaked from the police with unsubstantiated rumors and blatant speculation. Public ate it up, of course. By the time of the trial, there was no one qualified to sit on a jury and men aware of every single aspect of the case. And naturally, the papers have been daily tying Frank, uh, or trying Frank in the press to the point that the public called him a, a pervert. And I mean, frankly, how could he get a fair trial? May 23, 1913, a grand jury was convened to hear evidence as for an indictment against him for the murder of Mary Fagan. Hugh Dorsey, the prosecutor, presented only enough evidence to obtain the indictment, assuring the jury he had additional evidence that would be uh, presented to the trial. May 24, the grand jury returned an indictment. Frank's uh, legal team demanded the grand jury indict uh, Jim Conley, who they sure was the actual uh, killer. Grand jury foreman on his own authority convened, convened the jury on July 21st, but Hugh Dorsey convinced the jury not to indict Conley. After all, he was a state star witness, so they couldn't have him indicted. The trial began July 28th in the Fulton County Superior Court. Leonard Rowan was the judge. The prosecution team was a little unusual. Hugh Dorsey was the prosecutor, assisted by William Smith, who was Jim Conley's attorney. Leo Frank was defended by a team of eight attorneys. In addition to the hundreds of spectators inside the courtroom, there were thousands gathered outside the building. This crowd and all the media pressure for a conviction was one of the factors brought out in later appeals as factors in the alleged intimidation of the witnesses and the jury. Well, the prosecution presented witnesses who testified as to hair and blood stains found on the lathe in the metal room to support their theory the murder took place on the second floor of the factory near Frank's office. There was a lot of argument as to whether the murder took place, uh, where the murder took place, in spite of the testimonies to the bloodstains. Because that cord wrapped around her neck could be found any place in the factory. Prosecution believed the scene in the basement supported Conley's story. I mean, let's face it, the assistant prosecutor was Conley's own attorney, which was a clear conflict of interest that the court ignored. And the body was carried down in the elevator, but the drag marks, which police had not thoroughly investigated, supported the idea that the body was taken down a ladder and dragged across the floor. And from the records, there seemed to be an assumption that the hair and blood found on the lathe belonged to Mary Fagan, but there was no evidence presented it was actually hers. 
And the implication was also made that only Frank had the key to the elevator, which was not true. Well, on this point, I'm going to have to bring this show to an end. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll talk about the the results of the trial and the cold-blooded murder of Leo Frank by law enforcement officials. So until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.